Thank you for tuning in to the Joint Discussions. This is a growing coalition of information for a community built on all things cannabis. We are curating dialogue between various people throughout the cannabis supply chain to broaden access and to bridge the gap between cultivators, clinical providers, and connoisseurs to unite our community. And now, your host, Dr. Pepper Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us on today's discussion over here at the Joint Discussions. I have one of my really good friends, Kimmy Mullen here. She's the owner and operator, cultivator at Jackalope Farms, now in Oklahoma. Her farm uses regenerative organic farming practices to produce some of the best sun-grown flour I've ever seen. And coming up really soon for your farm, you're going to start growing vegetables and stuff. Let's get all into that soon, aren't you? You're looking at me crazy like you're not. Okay, okay. I want to talk about that. (laughs) Hi, Kimmy. Thanks for being on today. I know you're like right in the middle of it. Actually, you're always right in the middle of it. But uh, thanks for taking some time to be with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. How can I resist a Dr. Pepper moment? Oh, I love you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime I get to share with you is like so magical. We just hit it off right away a couple years ago now, maybe. But tell everyone your story or the story that you want to share with our audience and our listeners, because once upon a time, I heard you say, and I might be misquoting this, but you said something about you weren't supposed to be a farmer. And now you're like one of the best farmers I know. (laughs) So tell us your story. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Weed farming was never on the uh, agenda. I was a traveling musician for like ever like doing a lot of like bluegrass old time and then like punk rock shows and I had some bands that I would travel with and I would go trim weed since I was like 17 in like Chico and Humboldt County so that's kind of how like weed like funded my musician lifestyle because you don't make any money being a musician you get some beer so after some years of that life events happened and I ended up with an opportunity to go like full-time grow position at this farm and just like how my life was at the moment stars aligned and I just said yes so I accidentally became a weed farmer to a really really big weed farm in Humboldt County and I was 22 and it was just me and this other girl up on this mountain way up this mountain in Humboldt So that's where I started to grow. And then it just kind of snowballed into, I had a really good community there, friends, so it was really fun. And it was kind of like the days of Humboldt when everyone was still making money. So I ended up getting my own farm and then possibly kind of got a federal raid, but got away with it and then ended up going to Maine. And then now I've landed in Oklahoma, just by taking opportunities when they come. I was always a traveler, so very open to like anything. And when we talk about traveling, like how were you traveling? Because I've always found that interesting in your story too. Yeah, I did a lot of like hitchhiking and then hopping freight trains. That was like the main way to get around. And it was also really fun and like adventurous. And so yeah, that's how I got around. 
But so I was telling my mother the story of you playing banjo and like hopping trains and this and that. And she was just blown out of the water. Like I think most people would be that you don't hear of those kind of stories all of the time. Can you share something with our listeners that's semi-PG that you could uh, talk about those times in your life? Yeah, totally. So probably my favorite trip was across Canada on the trains going from like Montreal to BC, so British Columbia, like basically to Vancouver. And we, I was traveling with my main traveling band called Profane Sass, and we had a Subaru that we bought with some trim money and then eventually ran it into the ground. It blew up. And we're like, dang, we have this whole tour planned across Canada. Like, we have shows, we got dates. But luckily, trains are really easy in Canada. So we're like, whatever, let's just hop trains to all these shows. And then we ended up accumulating, like, five more friends to come with us all across Canada. So we had, like, nine people, two dogs, nine instruments. And it was super magical and... You know, we got pulled off by the cops and the cops loved us and took pictures with us. But we always had like safety as the number one thing because trains are dangerous. So I don't recommend it, but if we're going to do it, be extremely safe and cautious. I love it. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So we made all of our shows and it was hilarious and lots of fond memories of that. But nine people, that was a lot. That's a lot of people on a train. And we're like hiding in like little cubby holes and on the shipping container trains. They're called IMs, but we could go into all that. Yeah. How <laughs> do you do that? How do you jump on one of them? Like you just wait um, till it stops or? Yeah. I wait till it stops because I have a dog. I have a dog. I have a banjo backpack. So I always wait till it stops. because That's like the safest way. And you make sure it's a train that's going somewhere and it's not being worked on in the train yard. And there's like little ways to tell that. So I would do that, wait till it stops, climb on, and then you're basically just waiting until it takes off again. So that could be 12 hours or it could be 20 minutes. You don't know. So it's a lot of waiting. And you made it to each show. We did. I mean, that's like a miracle. Yeah, the one that we barely made it to, we almost missed. We were like literally, me and my bass player were like pulling up at soundcheck. We had to hitchhike to part of it and it was like, summer in Canada and we were on the side of the road hitchhiking on this highway of no one and there was like mosquitoes just eating us alive like we looked insane and people were like throwing trash at us (laughs) we eventually got picked up and we made it to the show and I think like five people showed up I'm over here crying. I don't think that that's very funny of people throwing trash at you, but I can see that as a cartoon visual. And it is, it's, it's quite funny. funny. It's a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not in the it's moment, okay. but I uh, I'm glad you find humor there. So doing that, trimming, being in the scene there in Humboldt, and then how did you get into just you and a friend way up on the hill by yourselves growing like that right there is I mean I've been up in these hills you know so how did that happen it was like a friend of a friend so I met this girl the previous trim I was trimming at a friend's place and she was working at this farm and she got offered the grow position because she knew these people for a while and then happenstance 
I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And I basically, she was like, I don't know if he wants to hire anyone, but you should just come and work. So I just went up there and worked for like three days. And the owner was like, so are you living here? Are you working for me? I'm like, I would like to. And he's like, okay. And, and then we worked our butts off. Oh so. my gosh. I love it. And you and your friend, I imagine that's where you started finding that passion for regenerative farming and those organic practices that now you've brought to Oklahoma. Is that where you started to learn those type of things? I mean, out of necessity, probably, right? But yeah, just kind of how everyone about? did it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But yeah. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> but yeah, that's just kind of how everyone, that was like the standard there was just grow organic. So the chemical thing, like all the crazy stuff at the grocery store was never really a thing for me. Like I, I missed that whole part because we were growing outdoor sun grown in like organic soil built by soil builders. And then you go to the grocery store and you get what you need. And organic was always on the table. And I always liked organic food more, obviously. And like California, it's really the thing. I feel like a lot of the, uh, the more artificial fertilizers are more for non-soil growing, like in uh, indoor which was like so far removed from what I was doing. I just like never was exposed to it. When you say soil builders, I imagine some of our listeners don't even understand what that terminology means. Can you explain that or go into detail on what that means? Because I think it's very important. Yeah. So when you're growing cannabis, like in soil, the plant needs certain minerals and nutrients, micronutrients to be able to thrive and produce a healthy plant. And what the soil builders, so like soil companies, soil builders, as I would say, there was a lot in Humboldt, some really good ones. And they're usually like scientists or have a soil background, an ag background. They met, like they build a soil for cannabis. That's what a lot of these places did. So that was just the one option that we had so the soil builders would put in X amount of peat moss, X amount of perlite, X amount of cocoa, and then X amount of your nitrogen, your phosphorus, what the nutrients your plants need to make it through their life cycle. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it is definitely a science. And I would yes, imagine you growing, you growing in different parts of the country, you have to adapt to that area. So like you're in Oklahoma now after spending like close to a decade out in Humboldt, is it different to build soil in Oklahoma with what you have as far as its native soil and get it to a place that it can grow really great cannabis? Definitely. It is 100% different. In between, I was in Maine and we had really good native soil. I barely had to do anything. So with how cannabis has been in the agriculture community, it's always been a faux pas to really release any research on it. So over the past decade, it's completely changed because more people are studying it and being more open about growing. So now there's so many resources that farmers have available versus even just 10 years ago, it's completely changed. So with my Oklahoma project, I've kind of, 
I feel like I've relearned to grow a million times at this point. Each like bioregion, each soil, it's so different. But with Oklahoma, I came here during the green rush. People were just carting in bags and bags and bags and trucks of soil from just California, which I was like, there's no way I'm paying for that. Like, it's just like peat moss mixed up. I'm not going to pay someone way too much money for bag soil because I was putting in a really big farm. It would have cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars for all that. And really that soil isn't technically soil. It's soilless media, which the soil I'm trying to work with is more the natural soil, which soil is actually a sand, silt, and clay base versus like what the soilless media is, which is like 70% peat moss. And then maybe there's some compost thrown in and perlite and then some other things. So it's technically not what the definition of soil is. So with what I'm trying to do here is build a native soil that's as good as possible. Just because I think to be able to cut your costs, to be able, like to stay relative and not go out of business, I'm not going to spend so much money on a ton of bag soil, which I don't agree with either, like draining the peat moss bogs and like as a regenerative stance, I don't want to do that. So just learning a lot about soil has like completely changed how I grow. Can you talk to me about that? Because I know you and I have had our own personal conversations around peat moss and you've opened my mind to so many things. What's your stance on peat moss and working with it on your farm? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of unavoidable on a farm sense, like you're going to run across it. If you have to do little baby seedlings, it's great for drainage. It is cheap. And there are companies that do sustainably get peat moss. So it's a really hard line to draw in the sand because it's going to be around. Like I definitely have some soil with peat moss in it right now. And I'd like to go away from it. And like cocoa core is a, another option, but also finding clean cocoa core that tests without the heavy metals, peat moss is pretty clean for the most part and safe. So with being a legal cannabis farm, we are subjected to very, very strict heavy metal testing. So I have to be incredibly strict on anything that comes here. So Cocoa Core, if there's a good source and a good company that can provide the right tests, then that's a good option. And then there's also a new company called Pit Moss, that I haven't tried yet, but they're making like a peat moss alternative out of recycled newspaper, which is pretty cool. So. I learned so much about these things from you and I love that you geek <laughs> out on them and find out this information so I can learn it. So I appreciate <laughs> you. Before we move on to what you actually are doing on your property and your Oklahoma project, talk to me about the testing in Oklahoma. You just mentioned that versus like where you've been in Maine or you've been in California and we're not, you know, we're not wanting you to compare them and the versatility or the ones that are more difficult, but what have you been finding? So each state, when it gets online to become legal, it's going to come with different regulations for like yeast and molds, heavy metals, pesticides, and then like basic filth. So Oklahoma has really strict testing as far as a lot of the states goes compared to even California, which I was kind of shocked by, is Oklahoma's more strict as far as the yeast and molds, which a yeast and mold is just, it could be bacteria or fungus spores, and they'll put it in a Petri dish and count how many 
and then whatever that state figured out was the acceptable amount, that's what the state's going to go with. So in California, they don't even have that number. In Oklahoma, you only get 10,000 parts per million. And that's a really low number, which I don't have a problem with. Like we pass fine, but you have to be on it. And you have to be extremely careful when using like compost tea, when using biological sprays, which instead of using pesticides, the alternative is these biologicals, but some are made with bacterias and that could fail you in a test. So you have to be so, so careful. I believe Massachusetts is also 10,000 and then some states are like 100,000. So I don't know who made up that law. (laughs) I feel like it wasn't a farmer. (laughs) It just seems like so much to keep track of all the time. I'm sorry, go on. Oh yeah. And then there's the heavy metal testing, which being an organic farmer, that's also like most things have some certain amount of heavy metals and cannabis is a bioaccumulator. It is one of the few plants in the world, there's not many that do this, that like seek out heavy metals and suck it up. So like they use hemp in Chernobyl to clean the soil. They use hemp as a soil remediator. So when you're growing cannabis in an organic soil, you have to be so careful on the inputs you put in. You have to check heavy metals for everything because a lot of the common things that people used to use or are still using Uh, maybe in an unregulated market are like seabird guano, bat guanos. They have, they're organic, but they are very high in arsenic and also kelp products. You got to watch out for kelp products, which I used to love seaweed. That was like my favorite thing to use, but I can't use it anymore because it's pretty high in uh, arsenic. So when working with nutrient companies, that is like my first question. I'm like, give me your heavy metals testing. If you can't provide it, I don't even want to see your product. That's, I mean, that's intense, (laughs) but you have to, you have to, you're really putting something on the market and for the patients, the cannabis patients, you're putting something out there that's incredibly impressive, by the way, and is clean and something that you use yourself. Let's talk about what you are using as far as, you know, you mentioned bat guana and then sea vegetables, those kind of things. But did I hear you once upon a time? say that you used a neighbor down the road, they have the little bunnies and you might be using that in your process. Is that still true? That's what I use now. That's the only thing I use. So everything else has been canceled besides like this rabbit from this organic farmer. He's like a large scale rabbit producer. And luckily I just found him off Facebook marketplace because I was looking for a clean compost. And I'm like, please, I like need something local. And rabbit is like a great compost because you can use it like pretty fresh. Mine isn't fresh, mine's composted down. But you can literally take rabbit and just throw it out in the garden straight from the coop. Unlike chicken where it needs to cook for like six months, this chicken, manure could have salmonella in it. So you have to make sure everything's dead. So that's why I use, I use rabbit. It's my go-to. That's about all I use. It's so clean. You know, I know the feed that they're feeding and they also have a great NPK level, which is the nutrient levels in a compost or manure. Theirs is really high and a great mineral content. So I'm a big fan. Get rabbits. <laughs> Throw them out in the garden. No wonder you're so busy. You're like geeking out on so many things 24-7. I love it. 
can you talk to us about Hugo culture and what you do in your bed specifically? Because it is so impressive. I've gone, not only have I been on your property a couple times, but I've also seen some of your work on some of your social media outlets of the process of bringing those beds in and creating those beds. And we're not talking about small beds. We're talking about huge beds. And that was a two-person team. Tell us about that. And I may not have said that correctly. What's the name of it? And Google culture. how do you go about creating that on your property? So there's like a million ways to do Google culture. And maybe Google culture elitists will say what I did was maybe not. The, they're going to be like, that's not Google culture. That's something else. But I call them Google pits. Google culture traditionally is a technique where you like stack logs on the ground in a vertical pile and then you pile like compost and leaves and grass clippings. So you have this like big T-shaped mound and then you plant into that. Then you put like a couple inches of soil over that and you plant into that. So you'll have vertical growing space, which is cool if you're doing like nerdy permaculture stuff because you'll have like southern facing slopes and northern for like shade loving plants and you can do it all. But what I did is, so we had the whole plan with this farm was to do two 30 feet by 100 feet greenhouses, auto debt greenhouses. And I was like, that's about as much weed as one person, me, can handle. But I always throw in more. <laughs> but our soil here, our native soil, is like straight clay and just rocks. Like we bought a gravel pit and <laughs> you try to dig a hole here and it, it hurts. But... We do it all the time. Sucks. So we're like, okay, well, we have to figure out a solution to how are we going to fill these greenhouses with soil? Like we have to do something. And we bought raw property. So we had tons of logs everywhere. Like we have all this oak on our property. And a lot of it's like just rotting in the woods. Like we bought 30 acres of woods. So that was like basically, I'm not sure when they clear cut it the first time, but there was a lot of wood there. And a lot of it's rotting, which is great for hookah culture. So we had all these logs. So the solution was to figure out, all right, to fill these greenhouses with like awesome soil that's just going to get better and better and better through the years. Let's do hoogle pits below our greenhouses. So we, we had this tractor guy who's like 85 years old. He's the coolest guy ever local. He helped us dig these giant pits with his little dozer. And he dug down like three feet into the ground where the greenhouses are going to sit. Well, in the middle of where the greenhouses are going to be. So basically the whole greenhouse besides like a foot to put holes in. And then we backfilled with about a solid foot and a half of just straight logs, like a sea of logs, so many logs. It's so hard to explain. It's ridiculous. Like we were chainsawing and dragging logs for like over two months filling these things. I was so buff. <laughs> and yeah, it was just me and Andy, my partner. And then sometimes we could convince a friend to come out. Like, please help us. So that was like the big feat was getting all the logs into the pit. After that, it was basically easy. We ended up renting a skid steer for a whole month just to help move these, you know, some of these logs are 24 inches across, which is really heavy. So we finally broke and rented a skid steer. We filled them up. And then on top of the logs, we put an organic hay, which was 
very, very, very hard to find in Oklahoma to find a no spray, no glyphosate straw for hay. And some old farmer down the road was like, oh yeah, I've never, never touched these fields. But it was like definitely like filled with weeds and stuff, which is fine for us, like whatever, but maybe not so good for like selling to cattle farmers. So the hay went down and then we got a bunch of the rabbit compost. So the rabbit has nitrogen in it and the hay and the logs is all carbon. So to speed up decomposition, the nitrogen and the carbon will interact and start decomposing faster. That's why you want a compost touching this carbon to like start that process. And then on top of that, we put in a bunch of topsoil about eight inches which you don't have to do eight inches. We just did because we plant fairly big plants. So we want to be able to dig down, but you could do two inches or four inches if you're doing like little lettuce or something that doesn't have such crazy roots like cannabis. Or if you could start your cannabis plants way sooner, but with like how depths work, we always have big plants. <laughs> and then with the soil, we put some more compost in, we're ready for planting. So that before we could even like build the greenhouses we had to build these pits and <laughs> it was it was insane how long did that process take i mean i guess it's going to differ when you're making smaller beds or larger beds but you guys had large beds how long did that take yeah it was probably not the best move for starting a farm but, but now it's glad done. you did it's it so easy it's so yeah. easy now uh, yeah. it took us a solid like two months to get the pits filled and ready and then probably a month to build greenhouses we bought the property in oh we yeah we signed papers for the property it's mortgage though but we got that in december and then we were planted in the greenhouses end of june which is late but we got them planted so we got like two rounds in that year congratulations that's huge one more little quick thing before i let you go you know, there's a, for me, traveling and speaking on cannabis internationally, coming from really born and raised Oklahoma, but then cutting my teeth out in Humboldt over the last decade in the cannabis industry, understanding the importance of sun-grown, you know, living soil cannabis and medicine. It just makes sense to me. But traveling around the country and internationally speaking, this argument between indoor and outdoor is so deeply ingrained in the newer culture, people who don't grow cannabis, it's so deeply ingrained on what they think is better. And that's a whole nother topic on its own. Yeah. But in joint discussions, I'm only speaking to farmers who grow under the sun outdoors because I'm incredibly partial to them. The work you do, the amount of time and effort, and it just makes sense. Why do you, besides that of necessity, why do you choose <laughs> Sun Grown? Oh man, I just cannot picture basically just trying to build the outdoors indoors. I think it's just, I like being outside. Think of like the garden, like you want that tomato grown from that sweet neighbor. Like it's going to taste so good versus like a tomato that's grown inside. And I get people have to do what they do. And, you know, I get the hype with indoor and people like it. But I think some people miss why cannabis was ever even grown indoor. It was because it was illegal. And that was 
how it even started is like you can't grow it outside because you're going to get in trouble if farmers could have just grown it outside indoor would probably not be as big as it is now but i grow cannabis outdoors because i just like the sun i just feel like so much comes from it and there's this giant light in the sky that indoor is just trying to reproduce which you can do cool nerdy thing and like nerd out about indoor and that's your cup of tea that's cool but in the long run like what's better for this planet that we're sitting on what fossil fuels are you using the light those lights when there's a big free light outside just there's tons of reasons and it also like tastes so good and the smell i feel like the nose is amazing and it like glistens in the sun when you see the trichromes and all of like the picture like i try to take a picture of weed like under false light and like i can never get the lighting right but when i go outside in the sun and i need to take a picture of something like the sun always makes it look the best agreed but, and so well said all of that so well said the research is there. So if you're listening to this today and you're wondering, the research is there. Go and look yourself. Yes. Figure there's it so, out yourself. And there's just going to be more and more papers coming out now that research is kind of the floodgates have opened. So now all this research that people have been putting into like corn and wheat fields for hundreds of years, cannabis is just getting started on that, that we can have like scientific trials which is so cool and I'm excited to see what comes out but from what I've seen so far like the sun puts out some pretty dank terpenes absolutely the sun is and all these research you know around sun-grown cannabis they are showing that it's not just the frostiness that you're getting from indoor which is why people kind of navigate towards indoor or move towards indoor but really it's there it's very much there for sun-grown the smell is there. The flavor is there. It's all there. And people just need to find farmers who they connect with and support those farmers, the local organic farmers, those craft farmers. We really need to be supporting those now more than ever. Kimmy, what else are you going to be growing? This is your third uh, year in Oklahoma, third or fourth yeah. year in Oklahoma. What else are you going to be growing? I saw that you might be putting something else in. Oh yeah, so I need some plants that I don't have to put metric tags on because it's too stressful sometimes. I'm, I'm sick of dealing with regulations. So I am, instead of expanding cannabis, I am expanding into some basic cut flowers. Like I am not a flower farmer, but I want to try. And I think peppers and herbs that I could dry and sell like spice mixes and maybe some veggies. I mean, definitely personal veggies. But just something that I can, like, don't have to bend over backwards and, like, pay money to be able to sell it. <laughs> I want something chill. <laughs> I would imagine so. Bless your <laughs> sweetheart. Thank you so much for being on today. I appreciate and value you every single moment that we get to share together. And I'm so grateful that you got to come on and speak to our audience today. How can the listening audience find you? How can we support you? Where are you at on social media? Give us that, like, you know, lowdown. Uh, okay, so I am on Instagram is my main jam until they ban me, but that's what I do. So my at is at jackalopefarms.cannabis. So that's where I put a lot of videos 
and try my best with social media. I am just a elder millennial that is trying to keep up. <laughs> but I'm gonna do a TikTok for my flower farms because TikTok doesn't allow uh, cannabis content. So I have to do a whole other thing, but cannabis over, over at Instagram. Awesome. And then to support me, if you're in Oklahoma, ask your local dispensaries for Jack Oak Farms. Or if you're just a normal everyday person listening to this, go out and get some plants, try it out, give it a shot. I'm always open for questions if you need help. Or if you see someone talking down on cannabis or whatever, try to like turn them in the right direction. And be nice. I feel like there's a lot of like negativity in the cannabis industry and it's okay to fail and do your own thing and try things. And I think people need to remember, like, it's okay. We all love this plant and we're all on the same team. Wise words, wise <laughs> words, my friend, Kimmy. Thank you again for being on today. Enjoy yes, yourself. You. You're about to make some, what are you going out to do? You're going to make some uh, hash or something? Doing some hash. Yeah. yeah you're busy for out. the rest of the day. Okay. Enjoy yourself. Thank you again. Thank you, listeners, for being present today. We hope that you enjoy yourself and you make this your very best life ever. Dr. Pepper Hernandez is one of the world's most respected and accomplished cannabis naturopaths. She has guided thousands of patients worldwide in the use of cannabis, non-psychoactive forms for a various range of illnesses, disease, and discomfort. She works with her clients in the mental, physical, and emotional components of health and well-being. She's the founder and educational director of the Cannabis Holistic Institute, which aims to educate, empower, and encourage holistic health practitioners, physicians, and students to use whole plant, sun-grown medicine as a part of their wellness routine. Dr. Hernandez is a syndicated cannabis medical journalist and the published author of the Cannabis Patient Journal series. Learn more about her and her practice at drpepperhernandez.com or across social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. If you would like to make a one-on-one -on -one appointment with her, connect with drpepperhernandez.com for an easy online schedule.